Hi everyone, I hope you're enjoying Summer in the Highlands. Here's a little collection of snippets for you to listen to while you relax. I've got one more thing in my garden that I'd like to talk about. This year has been a really good year for the common brown butterfly. Some people call it the western brown butterfly. I've seen this around in the highlands for a number of years but this is the first year that I've had them in my garden and I think it's because I've got more grasses in the garden these days or they've they've flourished more than they have in the past and the western brown butterfly likes to put its eggs in grasses particularly kangaroo grass but I haven't got kangaroo grass I've just got lots of other types of grasses and I find them interesting because they look different to each other. They're a medium-sized butterfly. The male is kind of an orange colour, but it's got lots of very dark brown markings on it. It's quite pretty in itself. It's got four little eyes, one on each wing. But the female looks quite different to the male, and she's got more orange splodges on her wings. You see them around a lot. They're the most common brown butterfly in this area. But if you're seeing brown butterflies, check them all out because there are others in the mix that look similar to the common browns that are rarer. So the common browns have been mating around about this time of year and now the males will begin to die off because they've served their purpose. They've done the copulating and the females will live on. You're obsessed. Well, it's spring. (laughs) (laughs) I'm seeing it everywhere. So the females live on through the summer and just wait for things to cool down a bit and then they will put their eggs on grasses and that'll be the end of their time. So if you're a butterfly watcher, you'll see we initially have a flush of males, then you'll see males and females together for a comparatively short time. The males start to look really quite tatty and they begin to disappear and the females will continue through the summer. So I think they're an interesting little group. Yeah, well, I've got a lot of them too. Yeah. Um, sometimes there are five of them all flying around each other. I don't know whether they're fighting or doing the thing that you like to do <laughs> all the time. <laughs> or I'm just trying sure. to impress each other maybe. Uh, yeah. Yes, I don't know. But, yeah, it's a very big season for, for those common Oh, so it's not brand. about my garden. It's just about I don't think so. <laughs> I have got kangaroo grass and I've got um, power, which is another right, one yeah. that they lay their eggs on. The females lay their right. eggs and grasses. Grasses are wonderful things for yes. a lot of a lot of the butterflies to yes. lay their eggs on. So if you're if you can grow grasses, which always look terrific when they're in large a clump, you yeah. know, yeah. Or if um, you can't do that, just a corner up the back somewhere that's yeah. a little bit wilder and got yeah. grasses, or somewhere where there's good wind and you can mm. see it waving around. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Lou, you told me excitedly during the week that you had seen some swifts. So yeah. tell the listeners about swifts, please. Uh, do you know what swifts are? They're birds. <laughs> Good. They stay on the wing for extended periods of time. In fact, I've read about a study where they tracked a bird, a swift that stayed in the sky for 10 months, nonstop. I must have read the same one. <laughs> That's right. On, on the wing all that time. Now, they look a little bit like swallows. Yes, that's true. And yeah. where I saw them was there was a thunderstorm, a really dramatic front coming over my garden. And I was watching the front and ahead of the front 
were these birds really, really high in the sky. Right. These were swifts. And about how many? I'm just trying to picture. Well, they tend to flock. It's hard to say because they're moving at an enormous rate just ahead of the front. This time I saw what might be 40, 50, wow. something like that. Oh, wow. All heading up, the, as I say, In line front up. Of and, the storm. and they're flying very, very high. They glide. Mm-hmm. You might think you're looking at a swallow. Mm. But a swallow. The shape of their wings. Yeah, but the shape of their wings is actually different. They have a very short forewing, the f- bit next to the body, and then a sort of U shape and then really long pointed wings mm-hmm. at the ends. And they only flutter the ends <laughs> and glide. Lou's demonstrating everyone. I'm, I'm flattering. Sorry, I can't show you what she's doing. Yeah, here. I'm flattering. <laughs> and they are remarkable flyers. And yeah. what they're doing with that front is that the, the, the front is pushing flying insects ahead of the storm. Mm, mm. And they are catching the insects. Wow. And that's what they do. They feed entirely on flying animals. Very often you will get those nuptial flights of ants or termites or even mayflies high mm. up in the sky and they will be swooping after them. Oh, right. Because I was wondering about that. I was thinking, wow, imagine having to find your dinner for 10 months just in the sky. But I hadn't thought about the, the flying swarms. Yes. The flying swarms. Yeah. But also another thing that they're very, very partial to, you know, is ballooning spiders. But yes. Yes. But I don't know how many of those they're seeing. With the, well, I suppose that would be a seasonal phenomenon as well, wouldn't it? In different countries, yes. Yeah. So they breed way up in the northeast Asia mm. and they come here every summer. Mm. After breeding. And, yeah. And I did wonder as I was looking at this front, was it coming from the northeast? Oh, because it was yeah. quite early on in, in the summer mm. and I thought, are they just being helped being along? Yes. And but when the front arrived, they well were gone. Be. Yeah. I never saw uh, them again. Clever. No. Right. And I understand that relatives of these of our swifts, we have two different types here, I think. Yeah, these ones were forktail swifts. Right. We have yeah. forktail swifts and needle tails. Yes, that's right. They are um let me have a look. They're, sorry, beg your pardon. They are not forktailed. They are these ones are the biggest ones. They were white-throated needle tails, right? And the other option would have been fork-tailed swifts. It would, but they have relatives in Asia, other swifts, and they're the ones whose nests people eat. used to eat. I don't know if they still oh, yeah, do. They, they do. still do, and and now they manufacture because these guys nest in caves. Yeah. And they may roost in caves, but mostly, actually, they live on the wing. wing. They even copulate on the wing. Yep. They sleep (laughs) on the wing. Apparently, half the brain just closes down and they just keep flying. Amazing. So, they used to be in these caves in China and I think Thailand. A number of different countries up there in Asia. And at the breeding season, they produce a lot of saliva. And the saliva is used in making of the nest, and it is almost entirely made of saliva. Wow. Hung into these caves or, or, mm. or even buildings. Mm. 
And what they're doing now, they it's very dangerous going into those caves and collecting that nests, those mm-hmm. mini nests, to make this very expensive. Frankly, I think it sounds disgusting, but very expensive bird's nest soup. soup. It is a specialty. Which is popular because it's supposed to be an aphrodisiac and it's supposed to provide right. health benefits, I think. Right. But anyway, you were saying what they're doing it's now. It's just gelatinous and horrible. I think yeah, it looks really appeal horrible. To me. Anyway, it doesn't <laughs> um, so uh, people have to go in there and collect them. In the old days, that's what they used to do. And a very dangerous job, very athletic job, climbing up on cliff faces and so on and so mm. forth. Now they build special buildings for oh. them. Oh. to nest in, but then they go and steal their nests, so yeah, it's not, so, not terribly yeah. kind. And there are concerns that it's having impact on the population of those. Well, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But um, why they, they live on the wing is because they can't actually perch. They're not perching birds. Mm-hmm. They can only hang, and that's what they do. They hang literally on vertical surfaces with four toes at the front. Oh, right. So they're in a group of birds called non-passerines. The passerines are the perching birds. They're most of the birds that we think about, but there's quite a lot of birds that aren't passerines. Now, she's, the passerines, she's gesturing again. <laughs> we the need passerines <laughs> are perching birds because they've got one, one toe at the back and three at the front, mm. and they can lock onto a branch when like they go to sleep. Like everybody's budgie. But I always used to wonder they didn't why they didn't fall off when they were asleep. All the same. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah but there's it's, a lock mechanism that's right. in their legs. Yeah. These guys can't do that. So they've got four claws that hang either on and a forward. vertical out a big on the outside of big trees vertically. But very often they actually will perch behind waterfalls. Oh, right. And this is why we cannot find any photographs of perching swifts because uh, they will perch behind, behind, right. if you please. So we are not going to have very many images with our audio on YouTube for swifts. Well, I won't be able to <laughs> any, I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyhow, they're remarkable birds. Yes. We're very lucky just, to have them. They're on the wing all that time. I th- yeah, I think it's a ma- remarkable too. Another thing that... I've got a little bit of a concern about at the moment is that I'm hearing from my garden bell miners. Uh, We probably all know the call of a bell miner, but I will play a recording that I made. This is not from my garden. This is from um, a large colony of bell miners down at Malakuta, but this is what they sound like. I think many of us know that call. It It is bell-like call, but it is absolutely constant. Uh, at my place, I can hear them. They're in the distance, and I'm a bit worried that they're going to come in the, into the garden because they're bullies, and they shoo away lots of the other honey eaters in particular, and they cause all kinds of problems. The colony down at Malakuta is really huge, and... If you spend too much time in there, I found the the sound just absolutely messes with your head. You get to the point that you 
can't think anymore. It's quite remarkable. And some ornithologists are conjecturing that that's part of their kind of aggressive behaviour, that they just create a wall of sound that the other birds can't stand. And the other birds' calls certainly wouldn't be heard above no, they can't communicate, can they? No. I can see that would be really irritating. Yeah. Worse <laughs> than irritating. I mean, you just can't communicate. So how can you say when there's a predator coming or there's food to be had or, you know, I fancy you? That's exactly right. Can't do any of that. Yeah. And the bell miners will also gang up and attack even somewhat larger birds. They'll get into groups of a dozen or so and attack larger birds and discourage them so that their bell miners end up having a colony of a large group of birds in one area and they more or less exclude all the rest of the honey eaters. Apparently if they like trees with low vegetation under them and birds like superb fairy wrens and the others that like low vegetation are allowed to remain in the area. Oh, very good of them, am I? Yeah, I don't know how they stand it. Uh, And I've seen wonga pigeons pottering in that. I was inclined to think maybe wonga pigeons are deaf, but then they've got that persistent call. They're definitely not not deaf. No. But both those birds have a call way below sort of... Yes, that frequency. that, 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 That high pitch sound. Yeah, perhaps that's why... But people worry about bell miner infestations because they do shoo off all of the other honey eaters and the bell miners take over an area and don't let anyone else in. And bell miners, although they're honey eaters, they eat lerps. We're back to lerps. We talked about them vaguely very early in the piece. So let's have another go at explaining lerps. There is a little insect called a psyllid, which is often a sapsucker, and It lives on many trees, sucking the sap. Say that again. Sucking the sap. (laughs) Enough. (laughs) It it produces honeydew and with that honeydew, it creates a cover over itself, which is usually white and sometimes sort of mostly a kind of a conical shape. And it's very sweet and many birds like it. Some birds will just eat the lerp and leave the psyllid to produce another lerp again. And other birds eat both the lerp and the psyllid. But in the case of bell miners, there's talk that they actually farm psyllids and lerps. So they eat them to a certain extent, but they allow the populations of psyllids to flourish so that ultimately the psyllids themselves overwhelm the trees and a certain amount of dieback is observed in plants where there's a colony of bell miners in the area. It hasn't really been 100% proven, but there is a strong association between the existence of bell miners and the existence of dieback. So I'm hoping that this colony doesn't um, spread itself any further and come into my backyard. I hear them when I go to office works in Mittagong. Oh, right, there's a colony over there. Yes, the Gibbagunya Creek is just nearby. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think I hear them. And then oh. I also hear them in Barrel. And there's a creek there. Oh, and do you yes. know what? I, I think that very often when I hear bell miners all going off, they may live around, around water. water. Yeah. The spot in Malakuta that I know of is, is, that is not wet. No. no. Okay. So we haven't actually described them. These birds are in the minor group. They're the smallest of the miners. They're, well, I'm 
you say the size of well the size of almost a, a noisy miner but not yeah, such a long not, tail not quite you? so big yeah yeah and they're a, actually a beautiful olive color and they have bright bright yellow legs and yellow beaks and they're really quite attractive to look at but they'd like to be high in the canopy and their green helps them to disappear into the canopy. Yeah, they're quite hard to see. You can hear yeah. them and hear them. You're looking up, your neck's falling off your head or your head's yeah. falling off your neck. Um, <laughs> yes, definitely that way around. Yeah. And very often you can't, you can't see, them, see but, them. But when you, if you really persist, you will. Yes. If they're going. Yeah. If you, you, and if you stand them. still, they'll yeah. come down as well. And one interesting thing that I learned about them is that the females can select the sex of their offspring. And female offspring will leave a colony in general and try and find another area to establish a colony. So if the existing colony is in an area where there's not much food, then the females will only produce female offspring because they oh, will depart from the colony. Because they will migrate out. Yes. Whereas if there's plenty of food available... Don't know. But Ooh. if there's plenty of food available, they'll increase the number of males because they stay in the colony and the males are actually the ones that in general assist with the feeding of the nestlings. I find that mind-boggling. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. That's my last little fact about bell miners. And Fascinating. We'll, well done, Floss. Thank well you. <laughs> that is quite something, isn't it? I just, just can't get my head around that. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Good. So let's have a quick little chat. We wanted to talk about places to cool your heels in the highlands in the middle of summer where's a nice spot to go to dip your feet in the water or dip more of you in the water than just your feet and I've thought of a few places one we've talked about before we went recently to the Marila Flora Reserve and we found a lovely little patch of river where the river comes down over is it a river or is it a creek there What's I think it's Bund- is it Bundanoon Creek I don't know. Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, oh, I'll have, have to, to go back to my map. <laughs> Anyhow. There's a watercourse that comes through there and it goes over a lovely area of shallow rock and you could just sit on top of the rock. It's very pretty, lots of birds calling around Lots the area. of really interesting birds. We did have, it was a remarkably nice walk just alongside the river, mm. wasn't it? Mm. Beautiful. And another spot that uh, is nice that's shallow, not for swimming in, is up near the start of the Picton Weir fire trail. We've sat there on picnic chairs, you and I, a few years ago with our feet in the water having our lunch. Right. Uh, the river runs over the rock there. Right. Recently, I went up and checked out Blue Pool up on the Carrington Falls. Yes, over Carrington in that direction. National Park. Jamboree Road. Is yes, down past Robertson, down Jamboree Road. And gosh, that's a beautiful area and you can yes. swim there, can't yep. you? Yep, there's a lot of lovely water spots to and see. great lookouts. Yes. And a, a nice picnic spot. Yep, it's, it's a actually, lovely area to go it to. Is. I would advise though for that area to try and go when there aren't a pile of children <laughs> who've just uh, finished, uh, just in schoolie week. Or something like that yep, because it does get it quite get crowded because it's such a good place. Yes. I was there quite early in the morning at Blue Pool and there was no one else there but me. That's the way to go. But I have to say I'm not swimming in Blue Pool. I'm sure lots of people do because I can't see the bottom. 
I like to be able to see the bottom if I'm getting into a river. Really? Yes, oh. right. So, oh, I quite like the idea that there's the a mystery, monst- the challenge, the monster <laughs> at the bottom. And you know when you know how the surface is really warm, mm. and then you put your toe down a bit, and it's, it's freezing cold. cold, and you think, oh. <laughs> well, one of the places that I've gone is Mermaid Pools. On yes. Bargo River. Yes. Now, it's but a bit not for slippery. the hearted I believe. No, no. And again, you need to pick your time. Yes, um, it's pretty popular and apparently gets attended by ambulances on a fairly regular basis. Well, it's actually quite dangerous. You do see yeah. a lot of uh, crazies jumping off rocks and there mm. are rocks below. Mm. But if you're gently swimming, it's fine. But it's a bit slippery getting in. But it is so beautiful. Mm. I mean, you know, there's a price to pay for everything. (laughs) And talking of uh, that, uh, one of my favorite places, which many people don't go, but of course now everybody will race there. But I don't know if they ever will because you do have to walk a fair way. Mm. And that is into Stingray Swamp. Oh, yes. Which is in Penrose Forest. Yes. And it doesn't sound very attractive. Doesn't sound very attractive. It's rebadging. beautiful beyond words. But the, the price you have to pay words. is a bit of squishiness between your toes. Right, no, I'm out. You're out. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth it. Just as soon as you take off, they're out there. There are reeds, there are bottle brushes all around you. Oh. And there's. Very rarely are the people there. Oh, right. It is gorgeous. But you have to walk a long way and you have to walk back Back a long way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's probably my favourite place. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again in February. In the meantime, pop over to Going Wild in the Highlands on YouTube and you'll hear a whole lot of other snippets over there. Bye.